Well, it's my privilege to be here. I uh, woke up this morning in Toronto, and now I'm in New York City and going back to Toronto tonight. But uh, I'm here to talk about service management, but specifically change management, which is one, one component of it, a critical component. To kind of set the context, though, because I want to make this entertaining but also useful, for me, whether you know about service management or ITIL or any of those best practice frameworks, let's roll this back a bit to more basic premise. Okay, so. Yes, there's a framework out there of best practices describing how an organization can go about change management. But if you think about it, ITIL brought nothing new to the game. Because in essence, every organization has basic DNA critical elements they do, have always done in IT. They've always engaged with customers to understand demand, right? And to modify and to optimize portfolio. They've always taken those requirements they've gotten out of demand, and they've built things based on customer requirements. And I hope that they would validate and test and do quality assurance against customer requirements. Right? This is, this is basic. And then we finally get to this point of now I've built this thing, and I've got to do something with it. What they need to do is move it to production. But they need to move that to production in such a way that it doesn't take down all the running systems and all the services currently in production. And then, voila, once they're in production, they get the privilege of support. So whether you, know, you ever heard the word ITIL or understand what IT service management is, let me put it this way. It's just the job we've always done. The question really is, how well have we done it? Because while we've been in the business of delivering outcomes and services for a long time, our challenge is not that we don't know how to do these activities. It's how varied they are, how many times we do it redundantly, how many uh, non-standard approaches we have, how many ways we have to do things which are not connected or integrated. And so we suffer more from the point of the silo mentality of how we're organized and structured than we are from a lack of knowledge of what should be. Now, yes, we could get better understanding of what could be, and that's where ITIL and service management come in, because in essence, all that ITIL really represents after 20 years is the collective documentation and definition of an industry that says, here's what this practice looks like if it was in a perfect context. Now, that whole perfect context is something to be aware of as well, because you have to adopt and adapt principles based on who you are, the context of your organization. So that's premise here. First of all, yes, we're talking about change management, but change management has always been, always will be. The question is, how well do we do it? Because while we do it, we have a problem. We are in this very silo-based organization. We have a dev organization. We have an ops organization. Within the dev organization, we have multiple silos because we have web applications. We have uh, ERP systems. We have classic uh, application. Basically, we have all these different functional groups. And then we have operations which make their own changes relative to infrastructure changes around the network, around servers, around databases. So we have all these changes going on. The question is, how coordinated are they? Because one of the interesting things that I've found is that people will say, well, we have change. Of course you do. Because <laughs> you wouldn't be working if you didn't. My observation, our experience over time, is that while they will have change, they all have their own change. Because what happens in an organization which is more focused on um, projects versus stabilized operation is there's no common practice to basically hand over projects to, right? So in a, 
project-oriented culture, and let's face it, we all want to be the R&D shop, right? The research and development organization. And there's no common practice for support around incidents and problems. There's no common practice around requesting things. There's no common practice for moving things to production. Every project, because of the lack of having standard practice, has to reinvent it again. So every project basically comes out with its own change practice for that application. And so here's the interesting thing. I rarely ever see an organization which is process anemic or is lacking process. The opposite is actually true. You have so much process, you're throttled by the very vagueness of the process and the very fact that you have multiple dozens of ways of doing anything. Our challenge is that we don't have process. Our processes aren't standardized, so we can't scale. Our challenge is we have processes up the wazoo. The last thing I want you to think about when you're thinking about implementing an ITSM process is you're adding one more to the pile. OMG, who needs another process? I, I see that the processes They are. And and everyone wants to hold on to their process. I mean, this is a perfect thing. This is actually absolutely correct. Nowhere is it more evident than when you have an organization which has a massive or major ERP system. Because what happens in this context? Uh, this, this is an example. So if you have an SAP or Oracle or something of that, J.D. Edwards. That organization knew how to do change management before the rest of the organization even knew how to spell the word. Why? Because it was one of the major critical mission uh, mission-critical applications that organization first had to do. So what they ended up doing was they created a mini-IT function over here called the SAP Group. Okay? It had its own data center once upon a time, and its own infrastructure, and its own application. We literally, because we didn't have the basis for creating standard practice across this morass of politics we currently live in, had to replicate an IT function and call it the Oracle Group, the SAP Group. Now. The very system they managed, SAP, required them to go through change, right? You couldn't even put things into production without an auto, a change coordination scheduling thing. The application itself demanded it. So this group has been, for example, managing changes for a decade using good practice, application changes, right? But then you come up with this concept, well, we should have a standard practice for moving things to production. And they go, well, wait a minute. Why, we're fine. Thank you very much. We have a practice. In fact, we knew how to spell change before you even knew how to, you know, you even knew it existed. And they'll say, wait, we don't need it because we have a very mature practice. Now, the reality is, is they're right. They have had a mature practice for a decade. But that's not the problem here. The problem is we have so many mature practices, they're all falling over each other. Because think of it this way. We went through the data, data center consolidation projects, or you're in the middle of them. You went through the infrastructure consolidation projects, the enterprise application consolidation projects. We now no longer have that dedicated SAP environment. We're in a common data center. Does that sound familiar? Oh, so we're, we're, we've consolidated, consolidated, consolidated. We're all into one condo now. Right? Nothing is not connected. Everything is into one data kind of environment, a production environment. We all share. Unless you're a totally diverse organization, which still happens for some companies, but most of them are in a common data environment, data center environment, production environment. The problem with that is we have all these changes landing into the production environment, and they all say, no, I'm good. I have my own practice. 
the analogy, and I just flew into LaGuardia tonight, as if all the planes coming in from Toronto and all the planes coming in from Philly and all the Pennsylvania, all were coming in, but everybody had their own control tower. But there was only one runway. The interesting thing is, this will get you past an audit. Multiple control towers, all landing changes into a production environment that don't talk. But what's the reality going to eventually be here? They're going to run into each other. Right? It happens today. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, not often. But the reality is, it doesn't matter how many change practices you have, you need one. Well, they keep bumping into each other, right? At least some, well, someone's actually noticed that they're actually conflicting. So someone's actually thinking about it in coordination. Some organizations don't even get to that point, though. They'll say, okay, infrastructure changes are in this process over here. Application changes are over here in this process. Um, network, pro and by the way, because we have cloud providers, they're not even any change process, but they're changing production elements, which have dependencies and other production elements. And so we have this potential for death and mayhem on the runway. You follow? So good intentions, we all do change. Yeah, the problem is we all have to have a standard practice because here's the, here's the rub. Before you ever learn the word good practice or best practice, I want you to think about standard practice. We're in one environment working collectively as one team to move things to production and other things like support, et cetera. The first goal is standardization so we don't run into each other. The second goal would be good practice, and if we happen to be designing a new process, why not apply good practice at the same time? But the reality is I would prefer you to talk about standard practice before you ever talk about best practice. Okay. You have to start somewhere, a framework, and then figure out how to improve it. But you've got to stabilize. In fact, there's a lean principle. I'm a big advocate of lean. You cannot improve any process that's not stabilized. How do you improve something that's not stabilized? So stabilize it first. Get the stakeholders involved in that who have to all agree that their control towers will now work collectively as opposed to independently in this way. And now we will improve. Okay. This is a key premise. The other challenge we have is we're supposed to be working as this collective team. In fact, here is the, here is the thing that is most dramatic Value is generated horizontally across our vertical structures. What I mean by that is the consideration of a value chain or value stream. In principle, the business wants benefits. In fact, if you think about it, this is a, a COVID concept. Value is generated by three things. Value to our stakeholders is benefited by, I realize the benefit I'm trying to achieve. That's one. Okay, so someone is actually achieving the project or doing the change. I am managing the risk. Okay, so risk management. And the third component is I am optimizing resources. I don't have five ways of doing things. I have one way. So I'm improving the cost component so that I have the ability to get a better profit. So value realization is three basic things. Benefits realization, getting what you're looking for. Risk mitigation and asset optimization, resource optimization. But unfortunately, in the IT world, culturally, 
we've always focused on resource optimization as the primary goal. If we can make it cheaper and faster every year, strategy achieved. Kaching. Because I've given you my 10% cost reduction this year. Done. But value has to be also benefit realization. Benefits are actually across the board. We have this concept of customer demand coming in the front part of our pipe, which will give me my requirements. I'm going to then be able to plan based on my demand, build based on my requirements, move it to production, and by the way, finally run it. In fact, you could argue that value is never actually delivered until you go to run. Plan build is giving you the potential for value. But here's the problem. We're supposed to be working in this collective value stream, working against common goals, with common beliefs, and common practices. How true is that, really? Value, from a point of view of benefit realization, is I'm receiving the requirements fit for purpose. So that's the quality component. Okay. So benefit realization is I want to achieve something. What is that something is defined. That is the quality component. Quality has to be fit for purpose based on what is the requirement. But here's the thing. Quality has two components in an idle world. One is function, which is feature. Okay, what does the project, the application, have to deliver to actually enable business outcome? What features? That's one set of requirements. The other set of requirements, which is unfortunately not delivered, is the non-functional. Because the development shop, because they're focused on things like time and speed to market for new feature, are not talking to production, which have another set of goals, which is stability, which is control, stabilization. So often what's happened is the focus on requirements is feature, or what ITIL calls utility. What we should also be doing in the world of development for value generation is thinking about non-functional or warranty components, like what are the security aspects, disaster recovery considerations, what are the availability and, and capacity uh, sizing elements we need to consider from the point of view of this. What about production support? What's our support model before we move it to production? How about our management of change side with the people side of the organizational change component? So what's happening, and this is all about DevOps, which is what DevOps is all about, is what's include operations earlier in the life cycle because now we'll not only focus on feature, function, but also on non-functional or warranty components. Because what happens, and this is where change comes in, change is right here, right? It's the gatekeeper into run. And change is trying to do its best on scheduling and coordination, but it can only schedule planes. It's not going to be the basis for understanding non-functional or quality aspects. This is where release management comes in. And we'll talk about that a bit more in, in this conversation. But our challenge here is we have two cultures. We have a dev culture who is focused on this set of values, and that's fine because the business want things quickly within a cost-effective way. We have folks over here in ops saying, well, wait a minute. Before you pass go, you must then you know, fill out this triplicate document 100 times. right? The problem is it's not one or the other. It should be a blend of both. And so change has to be based on risk, saying, Due diligence for major risky projects is like this. Medium projects is like this, or changes. 
minor and urgent. So we literally begin to look at what is the change based on risk. Because here's what happens. When we don't align the two visions, okay, we have a problem. It worked fine in test. It's an ops problem now. Because what I haven't done is I haven't incorporated into demand plan build the non-functional warranty component of production assurance. The interesting thing, this is kind of outside of the scope of what I was planning to talk to you about. Uh, have you read The Phoenix Project? It's a new book out. It's, it's relatively uh, new, and it's a very powerful book. But in this book, let me talk about the context. In this book... Okay, you saw... He's the author, primary author. So he talked about... Oh, he's a great guy. He's a genius, actually. But the, um, the thing about Gene Kim's book, he talks about two types of work, planned and unplanned. Okay, so think about it this way. You all do two types of work. Now, planned can come in three categories. Business projects, the business wants. IT foundational projects, which you need to do to basically enable business projects, right? Now, he calls them infrastructure, but I'll say there's more than that because the management practices we're talking about today are also important. Having good change, good capacity, good service continuity, security. I'll, I want to include that in the foundational component. Then there are changes, whether they're application changes or infrastructure changes. They're still planned, and they should have value. Otherwise, why are we doing them? So we come to work every day wanting to do good business value activities around planned work. But then Monday morning comes, and what happens? All the things happened on the weekend blow up, and we spend the next half a week basically in unplanned break-fix support issues because we haven't orchestrated well changes into production, but not because it's a scheduling issue necessarily. Yes, it's potentially possible to have two planes collide, but most of the time it's because of pre-production assurance issues. It wasn't tested, validated, assured properly, so it got to production never being properly tested or validated or assured. So I spend all this time in break-fix support and by the way, in a lean world, when you talk about lean as from a value proposition, value is something the customer wants to pay for, is solving an incident or resolving service disruption something the customer wants to pay for? Is that waste or is that value? I know if you're production support, you're starting to struggle with that question. But would the customer rather not have incidents to begin with? Should not have happened. So we get really proud about incident, problem, and change, and they're good things because we have to stabilize. Okay? But the reality is we have to do those things because that's basic DNA, support, change. But the reality is from a DevOps perspective, we're supposed to be moving the stability, warranty, non-functional elements earlier in the life cycle to remove the sources of unplanned work. Because I, I did a webinar just yesterday on this, and I did a, a question, how many people spend less than 25% on unplanned work, 25 to 50% unplanned work, greater than 50, less than 75, and more than 75. Two-thirds of the people who responded to this vote said they spend over the 50% of their week in unplanned work. What's the impact on value-added activity then? Negative. Meanwhile, what are we doing for the business? Change is important in this context because change 
sits right here and says, before you come into the production environment, have you gone through a proper life cycle? Because change is the only way release will basically have the capability of saying, before you come into production, you have had to meet these non-functional requirements first. Scheduling is important, but even more important is the release assurance that change has to enforce. Because without change standing between dev and ops, right, you've got all these towers flowing planes in without controls. And the disruption that arises is why we have 50% plus of unplanned work every week. Meanwhile, the developers, by the way, are spending all their time in unplanned work when they want to be back on the dev side working on planned work. So it's not to their advantage either not to do this. Now here's the rub, guys. When people implement service management, which by the way is the entire life cycle, because Idle talks about strategy, de uh, design, transition, operations, right? We implement incident, problem, change, stop. What have we done to remove sources of unplanned work if we never move beyond change management? We just get better at resolving things faster and scheduling things more organized way. I'm not saying this is not important. You have to stabilize, but you also have to think about transform. But change is critical because you can't get past step one until you have a gatekeeper. And by the way, I'm not trying to say all changes must be locked down because one of the key things you're going to see in this presentation is change must be fit for purpose based on risk. Something should go through proper due diligence. Something should be standard, pre-approved. In fact, ITIL would talk about moving more and more things down the risk level, not up. And it's often criticized, well, ITIL says we should all put everything through change management, and they vision this one big pipe and one big meeting called the CAB meeting, and all changes of all types must go through this peer review. That's, that's not what ITIL's saying at all. Okay, that's not a good process, right? That's not a good process. That's not what ITIL says to do. And we're going to talk about change models that says this is a major change, medium change, minor change, urge. What happens, though, is everyone says we must put it all through formal process, and they have this one pipe, one meeting, and all this process, and basically it kills the whole momentum. That's not ITIL's problem. That's a poorly designed process based on risk. That's not, not based on risk. That's a, that's a process design issue. Because ITIL would never say that, even though they'll say ITIL, they'll wave the book. I, no, they're, they're misclaiming. And this is what a key point we're going to make there. But the key is, yes, it's important to have this conversation. But the challenge is we have to overcome and balance both goals. Not overcome, we have to balance both goals. Speed, which is fit for purpose, criteria based on risk. But also stability. If it's really important, high risk, it must go through proper due diligence. We have to make decisions based on business risk and business value. Because value realization benefits, yes, but also risk mitigation, which is where change comes in, all right? And asset optimization is where process standardization, let's have one way to do it versus five, is another key component here. So un <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is, Despite what popular might be believed, change, manage change management is not the enemy of development. It's not trying to basically put a roadblock in front of all things. 
is trying to create the proper level of due diligence based on business risk. So the very first thing you must be able to do is create a definition of what is a major risk, what is a minor risk. Let me ask you this question. Um, business impact analysis, disaster recovery, does your organization do anything in that context, right? I'm sure, because you have to have some DR capability. Have you ever had a conversation with your business partner, your business process owner, saying, okay, what do you want to pay for for DR? There's this level of DR and this level, well, and, and you'll say, what are the mission critical? And right, right away they tell you everything's mission critical, and then you come back with a bill. Okay, that's going to cost this, and they go, oh my gosh. All right, so you go through this iterative conversation, but finally, right, so they'll finally give you a list of classifications. This stuff is big, this stuff is less important, right? That's a, that's a business impact analysis. What if I took that BIA, where I've already classified all my applications and services based on what they're willing to pay for for DR, and then applied it to incident management, because now I know what is a severity one versus severity five, right? But I can also apply it to my change model, because now I can consider what is a major change versus a minor change, because it's all about risk. And if you tell me this is a class one business risk application slash service, I'm going to want to make sure I do more due diligence on that puppy than I do on the internal SharePoint environment, maybe, depending on how you classify risk. You follow me? So you've already gone through this exercise of, of basically getting the business to tell you what they're willing to basically pay for based on risk. You want to align these components to change, incident, and pretty much anything else that you do from the point of view of value justification of activity against process. It's all about what the customer is willing to pay for for the purpose of business value generation, risk mitigation. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to come up with a way to, to, to create a standard approach for managing change based on fit for purpose. Make it as lean as it needs to be, but don't just give away the farm when it needs to be done right. But it's certainly not one big pipe, one big process where all changes flow through it. Now, to give you a sense of maturity as well, this is not an ITIL slide. It's something that we have developed based on our experience. Okay, I consider change has an evolution of three stages. Okay, the first was you told people you were going to change things. <laughs> hey, all right, we'll call it change notification. You know what? It's a big improvement because in the old days, things just changed, and you found out on Monday when the service desk got called, right? And Basically, that was the first notification you had of anything actually happening. Now, if they told you before it actually changed, you were already ahead of the game. You could upstaff your service desk on Monday. Okay, but that's not good enough yet. The next level is called change control. Now, change control is not what ITIL calls change management, though what most people call change management is exactly this. Right before the weekend, maybe a Thursday or Friday, I have a change advisory meeting, and everybody has their changes into the schedule, and we all talk about them. And we say, yay or nay, but not really, because all we're saying is, when can, you, when can you go live? Do you go live this weekend, or do you have to wait to next weekend? So all we're really doing in this context is telling the airplane it must circle one more time. In fact, we're not approving changes at all. What are we approving in this context? The schedule. Now, it's not bad. It's already better than not having any controls at all. But we're not approving changes. We're 
scheduling changes. All right. There's another conceptual approval up front. So in any change process, there's at least two approvals. A minimum of two, you might have more. There is, can I go live, which is, can I move it into production? Okay, transition to production. That's that change advisory meeting the week before. But there's something up earlier, which is, I have an idea, I'd like to buy this thing, or I would like to develop this thing, or I would like to enhance this application with this request. These are the conceptual approvals. Okay, can I build, buy, or do? Now, you might say, well, that's not in change management. Okay, ITIL would say I, that um, changes are always approved conceptually as well as to promote the production. But here's the practical side of this conversation. What you call change management is not necessarily limited to what is truly change management or the change management system. Because you have projects today that get approved through a project approval methodology. In fact, you have a project charter document, perhaps, or you know what you might call that. Consider that project charter document as a request for change form for projects. Well, you might have an application enhancement or service improvement. So it's business process. Well, there are things which are requiring capital funding okay, through a portfolio process. We'll call those projects for the moment. Then there are changes which don't require capital funding because they have operational budget. That could, they both could be CSI. This is really about the scale of what you can approve with the existing budget or not. But the reality is either one of those, whether it's an app enhancement, I add a field or a new report, or I'm creating a completely new function, which is a major initiative, they're both CSI. But the key is you probably have two different methods for approving that. True? Yeah. Then I'll have something I actually call change management. It might be just for servers and databases. Okay. I have move ad changes for moving people around the office, right, or whole offices to another building, right, Max or, or IMAX. The reality is they're all changes. Now, here's what I think is important. Regardless of what you call change management, this is all change. The key is, do you have a conceptual approval process? Is it fit for purpose? Right? Is, there, are, is there adequate controls around it, yes or no? If that's true, good. I don't care if you call it a project or an app enhancement or a CSI or, or a change. The thing is, you have the front end figured out with the practice for conceptual approval. But I do care about this. Regardless of the source of change, they all must meet in a common scheduling conversation. Because this is my common control tower, landing planes of various sizes onto a common runway. You follow me? The problem with this is many organizations say, OK, IT projects don't count, and they just flow right through. What's the risk of that when it's not coordinated with all the other sources of change? Do you see the problem? So you must at least all meet in the middle. Now, all meet in the middle doesn't mean you're going through one big change meeting, but you're going through one process for scheduling coordination and de de defining risk. It's just like adding a new landing slot to your office. You have to, uh, and even, it's not even some slot. Let's say I have a major 747 landing, okay? I don't want to bring in a Cessna right on its tail. Why? What's true about that 747 landing? It's probably a lot of turbulence because of the major thing. And to land a small 
Cessna right after the 747 is probably not the g in the goodness for that Cessna because they'll come in through all kinds of turbulence. So it's not even slot, it's planning relative to kind of what changes and what kind of changes. Now, let before you think I'm advocating one big pipe to hold all changes, it's not true. I'm just trying to say you must consider all changes in context with each other, regardless of its source. Now, this is not idle, this is practice. Does this make sense? Because in the end, we don't want death and mayhem on the runway. But we don't want to over-impede changes that don't need the same level of due diligence. So what do we do? First of all, we recognize that the changes have levels. There are strategic changes. Okay, I want to add a whole new service outcome to my portfolio. Something I totally don't do today. Are you going to internally develop it or externally source it? This is a portfolio level change. Then there's a tactical level change. I have a service like financial management or um, payroll or uh, supply chain management, for example. And I have a specific set of attributes about that service. It has these features, these functional, non-functional requirements. If I change a core attribute about the service, this is a service change. It's a pretty serious change. It's, a, it's, a it's an element of change that requires a change to be approved by a service owner. But then there are operational changes, which mean I want to add a report, right? Or I'm going to change a component which has fault tolerance built in. So when I change this network device out, it's not going to bring down the entire outcome. The level of change will have different authorization requirements. Would you agree? Absolutely. So my change process isn't just down here. There are tactical and strategic levels of this conversation. So I need to think about this in the context of a change model. So what is a change, first of all? Well, think of it as this. A change is the addition, modification, or removal of anything that could have an effect on IT services, pretty much. Now, actually, it gets into an interesting conversation if you ever take on the world of config, because config, service asset and configuration management in ITIL talks about all these configuration items. Could be a server, could be a database, but also could be an application, but also could be a service. Right? This is where the service conversation comes in. If I change the IP address on a server, pretty much I'm going to potentially impact, I'm going to take down the server when I'm doing that. That changes the status of this outcome. If I change the memory, or if I increase table space on the database, or I add a new app, I have to recompile the application and republish it. That's a status change. That's a change, because for a moment, I'm going to impact the outcome for a while, and I have to make sure I coordinate that. But let's say I'm just changing the IT contact for that service. Is that a change? Well, yes and no, because it's not, checking, it's not changing the status. So literally, you have to think about it in that context. So some things require change management, some things maybe not. But when we get down to CMDB, we have to think about it right down at the attribute level. So this is where it gets interesting. So the key is, when I change this component, is it impacting its consumption, use, or function? If that is, then it's a true change, and it must go through some level of validation, testing, coordination, and scheduling. And depending on the level of risk of the change, it will go through either a large set of activities or the line manager can just say yes. This is where we come into change models. So a standard change says, 
it's a normal change, but a normal change has levels. And so big, medium, small. These are normal changes, and depending on the size and risk, I will need a bigger lead time to do proper evaluation or shorter lead time. Like a minor change can maybe just do a, a, with a week lead time. A major change of a business outcome requires three weeks lead time. You, you decide. That's your decision. But lead time, how much time you need to review this thing, will be dependent on risk as well. Standard. But then I have emergency. And this is, Kathy, the conversation we were having. This is time sensitive. Meanwhile, I, I can't get into my normal change process. I have to do something faster because we either have a service that's out, disrupted, or it's an impending disruption. So I have to basically go through what's in essence a verbal process and then catch up with the paperwork later. But the thing is, I have a process because if I say, if I say oh, all questions away, it's an emergency change, forego the process, what's going to happen to all your changes? They're all going to become emergency changes because path of least resistance. So it's not about doing away with process. It's about having the right level of process. So there's an emergency change. Then there is a normal change, right? This is any change that is not a standard or emergency change, and it might be something we call pre-approved. This is something that happens on a regular basis, and we've, we've vetted it out, we've tested it, and we've got a good assurance from experience, not just the say-so of the change person, that it's actually a normal change, and so we actually have a much lighter change requirement for this. It's normal. So we come up with change models that basically equal the change. And so that the level of due diligence practice authority for approval fits this risk level of this change model. So the last thing we want is for things to go through one pipe. We want risk-based change process. So we have the change records, which gives me the sense of what should be in a change as far as information, and the change models, meaning now that I have standard change types, I know what flows and how it flows based on what type of change. The key is, by the way, we share agreement on what these are. Because if you just write up a document and say, oh, this is my belief, but that belief is not shared by anybody else, how does that work? It doesn't, right? In fact, I was talking to Kathy earlier. We were saying the real deliverable of any process improvement project is you have a bunch of people who think this way now, act this way today, which are all different, that you need to convince to work one way based on one set of terms and beliefs so that when you're around the family table having dinner, you're all speaking the same language. But if you're all speaking different languages with different beliefs, how's that going to work? You're going to be all over yourselves, right? Fist fights, right? It's that picture up we had earlier. So the conversation here is once we have a common definition of belief, terms, and practice, we can now agree on a common model. Now we get productive. So the last component is, all right, we did the best we could to think about all the possible ways to standardize it and basically fit for purposes process, lean it out. But sometimes things go awry. And how do we back out? So remediation plans are critical in this component as well. So the process of change is not that complicated. Now, if anyone ever tells you it is, it's, they're wrong. I have someone who creates a request. We record that request. We review the RFC from the point of view of its risk level. 
Is it a big one, medium, or small? That's the assess and evaluate the change. Based on that, I will have different channels of approval, different channels of review. For example, if you have a medium level change, it's not uncommon to actually have two reviews. A technical group review it, the SMEs, and they all approve it on their technical review, meaning it's not going to blow up or you know, impact something else. And then it goes to a CAB, which are more of a management peer group, and they now review it relative to scheduling, relative to what about all the other changes happening at the same time. So it's actually not in, uh, impractical for medium and higher to actually have two review cycles, a technical review and a management review. But it doesn't make sense necessarily for things lower, like the minor or standard changes. So you, again, you're basically defining the change model you're going to use based on this step, which gives you the knowledge of how do you coordinate it, authorize it, and finally deploy it, and then close. The principle being here, if I've got different levels of change, I have different levels of authorization. Right? Some things are high risk, high cost, and so they go before an executive board, before they even come to a cap, like that project that needed approval. Some things are pretty much standard, and they are just simply approved by the change manager or the line manager. The key is this is not one size fits all. The reality is you have defined a risk model for change. You have predefined the kind of changes that go through it, and you are now testing that the right changes are going through at the right level. And for example, if you find that you have approved a standard change and it starts to blow up, what will you immediately do to the standard change? What would be the obvious result? Roll it back up until they can prove that they can live nicely and you know, convince you again that they warrant standard change. By the way, who would, who would approve the concept of a standard change? It would be the cab which is the peer group. But the goal here is to move more and more down, not up. So the principle is not one big two-hour meeting. The principle is only the mediums to highs should go through that. And by the way, release should have already determined whether it was fit for purpose, because here is how we do release. And this is actually the least, imp uh, least implemented process of transition. Change, we've talked about has two components. There's promote to production, that's change control. There's conceptual approval up front. Can I build, buy, or do? What should be happening between, which most organizations do not have, is a standard release process that says, okay, once you've predetermined the risk level of this change, here is the standard assurance requirements for that level. Think about it this way. You go to all of your key stakeholders. You go to developers. You go to the business relationship manager role. You go to the client. You go to production support. You go to the service desk. You go to the data center folks. And you literally interview them. What do you think production really needs? And Kathy, do you think they're going to have some opinion on that? The security guys and the architecture guys? You're going to come back. You're going to have this list of 100 plus items of handover documentation and communication steps you must do, right? And you're going to go, oh my gosh. All right. But you know what? That 100 plus items might make sense for the massive projects, right? But here's what you're also going to do. You're going to now start to say, OK, we've got big projects with high risk, high cost, but now here's a medium change. 
or medium uh, release. And here is a minor. So you negotiate down. 100 for this big thing, 75 for this medium, 25 for this minor, and for a basic emergency, these five things must always be done. I must uh, version the software, and I must put it into a definitive media repository, a code repository. I must do that. Right? These are basic truths. So literally, what you do is predefine the production assurance requirements. Both. Right? So that's a basic thing. You would think even an emergency release must do basic things like that. But you predefine it. You don't make them guess every time. So here it comes. Someone has been given the go on Bill Byderdoo. Okay? They say, okay, congratulations, you've been given the approval for this project. And through the risk model, we've run this through. This is a medium. Here are your 75 criteria that you must do. And they're not all, by the way, happening the week before you go live. Some of them are at requirements. Some of them are at build. Some of them are at test and validate. But the problem with that, if we don't have all those things predefined, we come up with different answers every single time we ask the question. And by the way, often it's the project manager who's attesting to what is quality. And what's the problem with that? It's called conflict of interest, right? So here's the conversation. If you've predefined all the requirements that you need for releases based on fit for purpose, based on risk, you've given it to the release builder, the project manager or the developer. They have gone through this activity being guided by what's called a release manager. Now here's the conversation at the cab, if this is actually working. So we finally get the week before we go live, and in the cab meeting, Here's it going. Okay. Kathy, you're the change manager. You say, okay, Troy, I'm, I'm the release builder, and sir, you're the release manager. Okay, so Kathy, you knew about me coming down the pipe for a while. It was a major project, and you had view of that. Okay. And you look at the release manager, and you say, are you happy that Troy has met all the requirements or at least got exceptional sign-off for the ones he hasn't to the point that production assurance is vetted and validated? I, as a release manager, don't have the right to say that. It's the, excuse me, the release builder. I'm the release builder. The release manager, which is the assurance role, the governance role, says yes. He has validated and assured, and, sign, and we have a sign-off for this. And Kathy says, fine, Troy. Saturday night, 2 o'clock in the morning, still looks good. Go forth and be happy and tell me how it goes. That's done. So instead of an hour conversation, did you do enough of this? Did you do enough of that? What about the testing? I can't ask those questions at the cab meeting. It's way too late. But you see, without release, change is burdened with the question of quality. But that's way too late. Because much of the quality conversation should have happened weeks, if not months, before. And so we coordinate and schedule changes in the production, and it still crashes on arrival. Because it wasn't about planes colliding in midair things should never have been allowed to go to production. Amen. This is release and deploy, by the way. Release is called release and deployment management. Release is the pre-production component here. Deploy is now that I've gotten approval from change, I package and push and publish. So there's two components there. In fact, sometimes done by different people. That's when you get improved production stability, and you combine both the change and release conversations together. Change is a dependency, because without change, release basically has no basis for teeth or compliance. 
but without release, change doesn't answer the quality question properly. Because in the end, we're measuring a bunch of things. We're measuring, am I able to coordinate and scale all kinds of changes coming into my production environment of various sizes? Do I have the right level of change going through the right level of approval? What are the sources of my unplanned changes or time-sensitive changes? Are they disrupting more or less than normal changes, and why? Right. So you're thinking about quality as a reporting concept. You're thinking about uh, whether it's being successful from a value perspective. Change is actually coordinating it successfully. You're thinking about performance. Are changes moving through quick enough? Am I getting changes into my process with enough lead time to do proper evaluation? And I'm thinking about compliance. Who's doing it and who's not? Measurement has to be holistic. So the whole premise of this conversation is change is normal. We're certainly not trying to disrupt the flow of value. But value must be moderated with risk as well. So some things require lots of standardization in practice. Some things should require minimal. The key is getting it right. This is change management, not one pipe to rule them all. I hope that's been useful. Go ahead. Continuous integration, you mean DevOps automation of changes? Getting at the GMK, I'll answer that question. All right. So with... All right. So the premise of virtual cloud, a virtual uh, private cloud, excuse me, is that everything becomes software, right? Hardware becomes software. Configuration of my production environment becomes software. Uh, my databases become software. Literally, I can create uh, my entire production environment with script. Everything can be automated for production automation. Put it that way. If I have the ability to say, here's a standard server build of a medium server with these configurations, and I have tested and validated that, I can actually create that server build as a standard change. It now gets approved, if you use the approved script for promoting or publishing this new virtual machine, as part of a pr an approved change. And if you use the approved scripts for publishing and automation, which have already gone through the vetting and acknowledgement that they are pre-approved, we can move more and more things into the pre-approved status, right? So this is what Gene Kim gets into in his book. If you're and those templated status have been tested, validated as not causing issue when used, they can be moved to pre-approved and just have to record the fact that we've used them. This is consistent with ITIL where we're trying to move more and more things down into the pre-approved, but they have to prove that they have the right to be a pre-approved. And so they still have to go through the initial validation, testing, and qualifications exercises. And if they start blowing up, blowing up when we use them, we roll them back. And now they have to go through a more diligent practice of control and validation, right? or at least more steps. It's ideal to improve velocity. But velocity has to be proved first. This is where we get the balance of both control and stabilization and time and money. So that principle of everything going to pre-approved status and automation works with virtual cloud when everything is a virtual object. Very few organizations have actually got there yet.
right? So we're still working a lot with brick and mortar and, and, and physical device with many hands in the pudding. But that's where he's going with that argument. I know I've gone over my time here a little bit, but that's a good question. Am I okay to answer one more question? Okay, yeah, absolutely. You know, in the days of Google and Amazon, that shouldn't be so hard anymore. <laughs> 20 years ago, it, there is, actually, there is. So actually, Pink Elephant is actually the, one of the oldest and largest organizations who do IT service management training and consulting. We're over 20 plus years old. We were part of the original ITIL project team for the British government. Um, but the way it started, the company started, is kind of, kind of interesting. There were three university students in the University of Delft in the Netherlands, okay? And they were working on the graveyard shift in Dow Chemicals, and they were pulling off the print jobs off the massive printers, remember those days, and you, right? So this is when they used cheap student labor at night. But they were doing this for recreational funding. They went to school during the day, and they, they worked in the data center at night. Dow liked this going on so much, they said, well, listen, do you have any more frat brothers and sisters that we can use to, for this job. And so they ended up creating a student works project that said, okay, we'll create a little company of students who will work with Dow Chemicals and Shell actually after that as well. And they had to come up with a company name. The, the thing is, it was never supposed to be a formal company. It was three university students who were creating a student works. Yes, there was a bar. And yes, there was a drink called Rosa Elefante, a beer. And so they called the company Pink Elephant. Right, and it was, it was not supposed to be this company that would last another 20 years, but actually it became so popular, and one of the university students kept going. Two others went on to you know, pursue their engineering degrees and careers. And so while we started as a student works company, we kept the name, because after you know, starting, and we, we talked to our customers you know, about a decade later, we wanted to change our name to something more respectable. Uh, they said, no, 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 no. Now that we know the name, we love it. But you think about it now, it's not that strange. In the, in the days of Google and Amazon and, you know, it's, it's all about marketing, right? Our owner, our owner says that uh, with a name like Pink Elephant, you either have to be really good or really funny or both. <laughs> but I hope you found this interesting this evening. Excellent. Right? Because this is all about reality. So thank you very much.